As I read through this text today, we have kind of a, it's almost like a court case, um, the way the text is set up, and it made me think of what happens a lot in our culture today, which are these kind of almost like mock trials, but not really, and it's this idea of what has become known the cancel culture. It's the idea that someone has done something wrong, and because of it, they are publicly tried and shamed in no real court. It's the court of social media, I guess. And, you know, this can lead to, the reason it's called canceled is because it leads to a loss of everything. So for some, a loss of employment, social status, relationships. We tend to like the idea as long as it agrees with our own values. The one that we disagree with is getting canceled. We're okay with that. Uh, but in many ways, it has stifled public discourse, it's stifled education. It's people live in fear of doing or saying something that will be perceived by the society's moving target of right and wrong. In the Bible, there is a form of this as well, except the only moving target is the morality of the people, us. One moment, they are adulterers and idolaters. The next, they are seemingly repentant. Yet God remains unchanged, so does his law, as does his right to judge anyone and everyone who goes against his law. So in our text today, we have this kind of public court case, public kind of shaming, but unlike those that happen in our day, with this one, there's a hope of redemption attached to it. There's a hope of salvation, of a coming back. And that hope doesn't rest upon the promises of a fickle people. Rather, it rests upon the anchor of our hope, our Lord Jesus Christ. As we continue our study in Hosea this week, we'll see this kind of public outing of Israel, followed by next week's public redemption, a very real story concerning the wife of Hosea. I encourage you to read ahead. Chapter 3 is only five verses, but it's very, very full. And encourage you to continue studying this book as we go through it. Today's text is presented to us in the form of, again, this, it's kind of like the prosecution's presentation before the judge. So that's how we're going to deal with it. First, we're going to see the charge against the adulterer, then next, the evidence against them, and then finally, the pursuit of a loving God. And that brings us to the text, Hosea Chapter 2, verses 2 through 23. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Hosea 2, starting at verse 2. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. That's verse 1. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully And she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. 
Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which her which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts, and I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, for which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she offered burnt offerings to them, and adorned herself with a ring of jewel and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will be, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. There's a lot going on here in this passage. Remember last week we saw the redemption come to the children of Hosea, those three children that were so unfortunately named. And we're going to see that again this week as we work through this text, but not before we have a judgment against their mother. The judgment, of course, is representative of what all Israel would face. Indeed, the judgment that we are all owed outside of Remember, as we go through this book, it is written by a man who was asked to marry a prostitute and to have a family with her. And how her prostitution was symbolic of the prostitution of the people of God to the Baals and the Asheroths, the fertility gods of God's enemies. 
And something that we've talked about time to time is this idea that false gods don't give us anything. Right? A false god can't give us anything, well, because they're not real. They only offer punishment. They only give us bad things, if they give anything at all. It's similar to this idea of the cancel culture that we've mentioned earlier in the introduction. That worshiping of the seat, or worshiping at the feet of society's approval often finds you with the exactly the opposite of that. Their strict disapproval. It's only the one true God that can actually offer us grace and mercy, the promise to do so for all eternity, that grace and mercy being unchanged. And this only happens in Christ, who, remember, not only comes to deliver his people, but also judge those who do not believe. And those two things are very prominent in our text today. We see that right here at the beginning. Let's look at the charge against the adulterer, verses 2 through 4. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. In these verses, we kind of have an opening statement outlining the charges and possible punishment of this mother. Again, Gomer, Hosea's wife in the near time, but obviously pointing forward to Israel as a whole and all who are without Christ. Verse 2 uses these words, plead, at least in the ESV. I know that you guys may have something different. Plead with your mother, plead would be much better translated if it said something like dispute or contend with her. Um, again, this is courtroom kind of language. The the verb here is the verb to like bring charges against. It's not begging her to do something. There's no they're not pleading with her to do something right. They're actually bringing a charge to her. It's like the police officer showing up at your door with a summons to court. Very similar to that. Very legal sense. The charge of the accuser is being presented to the defendant. The charge is that she is an adulterer. And the judge, the father, is calling her to put, a, put that away. She will, she is to stop her prostitution to other gods and to turn to the one true God. And notice, There's an attached consequence to this in verse 3. And it's this idea that she is going to be laid bare, placed in the wilderness, out of the presence of God. If you think about that for a moment, that her punishment will be to be stripped naked, it's, it's kind of an odd thing because her sins directly involve that idea as being laid bare. But yet this is in the context of her shame. Adultery's direct result is shame, not praise. And the God of Israel will not be mocked. Whatever one reaps, he too will sow. These three verses are really at the heart of the call to repentance, not only for Gomer, the wife of Hosea, but for the people of Israel 
and also for anyone who has ever lived. These charges here are specific to a group, but they could be applied to all people for all time. It's the sin of the garden. Again, reproduced and repackaged. There's nothing new under the sun. Each time we commit any kind of sin, it is bringing us back to breaking that first commandment of having another God before the one true God, worshiping it rather than our Creator. It's the lot of all people. We are all born in this sin. And without some kind of change in our nature, we are all doomed to the judgment of our Creator that we see here. It's kind of like watching the downfall of some politician or celebrity, especially the ones that we don't like. Right? We love to look on and say, well, they got what they deserved, secretly hoping that our own sins never come to light like theirs did. As we move into the evidence against us, we're going to have more application, but it's important for us to see this call to repentance. Jesus came preaching the exact same thing. Repent and believe. Turn from your wicked ways and turn to me. Hopefully, that is the only message you'll ever hear from this pulpit, calling the believer back to Jesus, the unbeliever to Jesus for the first time. That's all we have. There's no other hope. Verse 3, that idea of being laid bare, this should cause us to shudder. It's the worst nightmare of any sinner, that they all would be made known. And sadly, in this life, some of us may have to experience that kind of public shame because of our sin. It's just normal. Just look at the news. But that public shaming is tame in comparison to the eternal damnation that awaits the unrepentant. So the call is the same. Repent and believe. What will we repent of? Well, God gives us that through the prophet in the following verses. That brings us to the next point, the evidence against them. Look at verses 5 through 6 with me. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, God says, therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her that she cannot find her path. Very simple accusation here. The mother of Hosea's children played the whore just as Israel had done so as well. God gives us a qualification as to what that looks like, right? As a, as a people. What are the people of Israel doing that he would describe as this? Well, they are, they are looking at their false gods. And they will say, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and water and wool and flax and oil and, and drink and who basically provide everything for me. Rather than reliance on the Lord for provision, Israel instead relied on their false gods, which actually can just give them nothing at all because they're just rocks. They don't do anything. They're just, they're nothing. Just like Eve looked at a piece of fruit. When she looked at the piece of fruit, what did she say about that piece of fruit? This piece of fruit will make me wise. It's, it can't. It's just fruit. Fruit can't do anything at all. It's, look at, it's like the people of, of God looking at that rock and saying, oh, bring us better crops this year. That rock can't even hear your words, much less do anything about them. All right, And so it's like looking at that and saying, please give us all these things or thank you for doing that. 
And so imagine God, the only real actor in the story, having to hear all of that. Well, what is his response? Well, he makes his, her way difficult. He, what he says, he says, I will hedge up her way with thorns, build a wall against her. She cannot find paths. If you think this only, if you think that this is something that only happens to some, like, well, that's for everybody else, then you don't understand your sin. The idea that our sins make our lives more difficult isn't really hard for us to imagine. Right? We all understand this idea, particularly those who have lived a little. We all understand this idea 100%. Even Gomer, Hosea's wife, knew that her adultery made her life more difficult. It's just an objective truth. Right? It wasn't as if those other men made those things better or made her life better, right? Or made things for her and gave them to her. Though they may have paid her, like we see that in verse 12, the payment or her wages, the payment always came with strings attached. This makes me think of Romans 6.23. Wages of sin is what? Death. She was receiving payment, but it would only lead to death. And notice, even though her way is difficult, she's going to continue to pursue these false lovers. Verse 7. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. She's going to come to the conclusion. What is the conclusion? Well, I guess I'll go back to my first husband. It was better than it I have it now. This should make us think of another story that we have in God's Word told by our Lord Jesus Himself, the prodigal son. Find that in Luke chapter 15 that I'll just quote from, but I encourage you to study that alongside Hosea 2. When the prodigal son realizes that he had it much better at home, he returns home. Right? The story should be very familiar to us, yet Jesus, remember, remember the, the parable of the prodigal, what does the lost son do? Well, he repents. He turns from his ways. He comes back to the Father, not expecting anything at all. He just wants to be like one of his father's hired men. But in Hosea 2, we don't see that at all. Rather, we see a people who are merely going back to where it's a little bit nicer. Never coming to the realization that all those things the false gods gave her were in reality provided by the only God who can actually do anything at all. Because he alone is God. Verse 8. She did not know that it was I who gave her grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. The Lord even provided her with things, knowing full well she would turn around and, and give them to some rocks named Baal. It's crazy. Just as the father in Jesus' parable, knowing his son would probably squander that inheritance, gave it to him anyway. This passage doesn't end like Luke 15, though, where we have the father and the son reunited and we have redemption. Verse 9 through 11, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. 
I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbath, and all of her appointed feasts. She's been canceled. Not only are her provisions taken away, but she's exposed to, she's exposed to those false gods, which is again a strange punishment, but very fitting. And I notice in verse 11, we kind of have not only, we have this, the picture of the sins of Israel. What are they doing? All these feasts and new moons and Sabbaths and all the appointed feasts, things that God gave to the people of Israel to celebrate Him and to worship Him, things that God said were good, yet they weren't using them to glorify Him. Several times in the Scriptures we read that the the sacrifices, those prescribed sacrifices in the temple had become a stench to God rather than a pleasure to Him. This is the same idea that we see there. Even those things that are good can be used for ill. Those things, those gifts from God can be called wages which my lovers have given me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are very quick to this kind of sin to forget that every good and perfect gift comes from above. We've been learning about this in our Wednesday study on Christian liberalism, how the church slipped into thinking that it was natural processes, the natural processes of the earth that have given us so much, right? Look at what the earth has done. Mother Nature has provided so much. Evolution has made us who we are. Science has made us better and better. Philosophy has made us the thinkers that we are today. And it's okay if God comes along for all of those things as long as He doesn't get in the way. God has to know His place as we discover ourselves as the sovereign of the universe. The theology of God's sovereignty is quickly replaced with human autonomy. The God who created space, time, and matter now has to ask permission to do anything because he's really just an old grandpa that passes out candy and money to his grandkids doesn't have any real effect he's just nice every once in a while and before you think oh not me that's not how i see it then just examine yourself you don't have to go far to find an area in your life where you would say were it not for my own hand these things would not be Think about the church and the plight of the church today. Churches have exchanged pastors for CEOs, prayer for purpose statements, the sacraments for coffee and donuts. Not bad things. None of those things are bad. But it's not the way that God grows His church. He has appointed means. We don't really have a say in those appointed means, but yet we've taken those appointed means and say, wait, God, you know, maybe you should try this. As if he hasn't thought of those things. I could go on, but again, it really only serves to puff those of us up who think, thank God that I'm not like that. If that's you, be careful. You're getting close to the edge. The drop is pretty steep. We're all guilty here. And thanks be to God, we have a way out. We have Jesus. We enter into this next section understand that it shouldn't exist. This next section from 
from verses 14 and on really shouldn't exist at all because not a soul deserves God's love or his mercy, yet in Christ we have it. We should be done with the court case here. There's no evidence that we can produce at all that would say, no, God, wait, there's this one thing or this one time because there's none of those things. There's none of those times. Were it not for God, we would have no hope at all. That brings us to the last point, the pursuit of a loving God. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. Up to this point, the accused has done nothing but earn God's wrath. And yet in verse 14, this is what we hear God's next step is. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Normally, when we see the word therefore in Scripture, we look back and we wonder what, we wonder what the context is, right? We want to have a logical connection. Well, since this happens, therefore, this is happening next. And here we don't have that at all. There's no logical connection. It doesn't make any sense that God does what He does. I mean, just think of it in pure syllogism form. For those of you who know logic, part one, Israel whores after other gods. Part two, Israel deserves punishment. Part three, therefore, I will allure her and speak tenderly to her. It makes no sense at all. This only comes from a God who loves, who has a people for Himself and intends to save them even while they commit adultery against Him. It makes no sense. Yet here we read that he plans not only to speak tenderly to her, but shower gifts upon her. And then we have this thing about the valley of Achor. To make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And you may be wondering, where does that come from? Back in Joshua 7, you may remember the stories in the book of Joshua. People of God come up against the city it's just known as Ai, A-I. And God delivers the people of God against the city of Ai. And one of the men there decides that he likes something from the temple there in Ai, and he takes it and he hides it in his tent as if God's not going to know. And he hides it. And they find out that he took something and they weren't supposed to take anything. Well, he's caught, and for it, his whole family... Him and his whole family are stoned, so much so that there we read in the text in Joshua 7 that there's a pile of rocks there that exists there till this day, right? Hosea's day, even though it was hundreds of years later, may, there may have still been the remnants of that rock pile. And that rock pile represented trouble, right? Which is exactly why it's called the Valley of Achor or the Valley of Trouble. Rather than being valley of trouble, that pile of rocks, which represented the sin and idolatry and generational consequences even of that sin, now represents a door of hope. And God even alludes to her youth, speaking of Israel, the time right after they came out of Egypt, the short honeymoon, if you read 
If you read Exodus, you don't have very long before the people of God start complaining that he's not being God enough for them. Where that, that short honeymoon where the Lord had with his precious bride, that it will be like those times again, so much so that the bride will call upon his name. Verse 16, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my Baal. Which is rough. And then we have from this, verse 17 and 18 and following, this covenantal language, bringing back the language of the covenants. Looking at the everyone, all the beasts of the, the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground are going to come and witness this before the Lord. Looking to a time when these things will be complete in the coming Messiah. How do we know? Well, only the Messiah can bring about the promises that we read here. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, steadfast love and in mercy. Only the Messiah can bring this about to which God can say to his bride, the one that he has chased in her adultery, can say to her in righteousness. But not only say in righteousness, but in justice. How is it possible that this can work? That this people can be called righteous and yet God's justice still be fulfilled? Well, we hopefully we know the answer to that. How can adulterers be declared righteous and at the same time God's justice be satisfied? Well, someone had to die to satisfy that justice. And that's exactly what our Lord Jesus did. In his death, we, brothers and sisters in Christ, have been justified. The sinless Savior became sin so that we might become the very righteousness of God. And note in verses 21 through 23, the redemption of the children. In that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. What an odd answer concerning those things. Why? Because Jezreel, not only being a city of bloodshed and idolatry, which we've talked about over the last few weeks, but it was also translated the Hebrew word to sow. And the people here, this word Jezreel, God is going to sow her, the people, into the land. People inheriting that promised land of God. Having mercy again upon no mercy. And to, the, to not my people saying, you are my people and I am your God. Again. This is a redemption that shouldn't be. At the end of the court case, we should read, and the people of God were no longer the people of God, and it was right. But that's not what we read. Instead, we read about the provision of a Savior, and Christ is that Savior. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what then shall we do? Examine your lives. Look at your idolatry. Repent of that idolatry. Rest in Christ. Return to Him. He's waiting. And He's not waiting to punish us. 
He's waiting to speak tenderly to us. Give us a door of hope. Were it not for Him, we would have no hope. We would have only shame. We would have only death. In Him, we have eternal life. For those who are unbelievers here, the same charge goes to you. Turn from the gods that you serve and turn to the one true God of the Scripture. Turn to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Call upon His name and be saved. In conclusion, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to study ahead. In chapter 3, we have there probably one of the greatest pictures of redemption in the Scriptures. But let us not miss this here, that God, though His people deserved death, instead offered them love. Rather than bringing us wrath, He brought us Jesus, who took our wrath, that we might have eternal life. Call out to Him in thanksgiving and praise, and call out to a lost world with that message of the gospel. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read these words, it doesn't make sense that therefore you would speak tenderly to us as a result of our sin. But we read over and over in Scripture that you've called a people for yourself, that you have directly intervened in the life of your people, that you have made us from death to life, that you have taken out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, that you have changed us. Even though we were adulterers, you have made us faithful by your work, by your will. Lord, help us not only to rest in that truth, but to continue to die to our sin, to put it away, to chase after you in good works, that we would walk in good works, not not for our own acclaim, because we deserve none, but so that Jesus Christ's name will be praised and so that the lost would see and that they would call upon His name and be saved. We pray this in His holy name. Amen.